Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 206 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. We have a packed show today, and the last time my guest for this episode was on, uh, it became one of the most downloaded episodes of all time on this show, and back is Predictable Success CEO Les McEwen. Last time you talked about the life cycle of your organizations, you should check that out at episode 112. It's amazing. And today he's back to talk about team members. And uh, it's like he's reading your mail. I mean, if you know less, you know this is true. And we have a fascinating conversation about something very different, the different types of personalities on a team. And we have all the links in the show notes, kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 206. I think you're going to love today. Um, also, Got a couple of things I'd love for you to think about. Number one, if you benefit from this interview, and I think you will, uh, so will a lot of business leaders in your church. So in those show notes, kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 206, we did something a bit different today. I put in some suggested texts that you can like cut and paste and just text to a friend going, hey, I found this episode interesting, think you might benefit from it. So maybe you've got somebody in your church who's you know doing a startup or running a business or whatever you think could benefit from this. Here's my request. Would you share this with them? Would you be willing to share it with them? Uh, I would love that. Uh, I mean, you can do it on your own. Uh, also, we're on Spotify now, like legit. So if you're a Spotify person, you can send them that link, the Apple podcast link, wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, we're pretty much on every platform. So send them that link. We've got it all uh, arranged for you in the show notes. Or, you know, if you're not comfortable texting them, email them the link and help us get the word out. A couple of things we want to tell you about. I got something special at the end that's just personal that I want to tell you about. So if you listen uh, to the other side of the interview, I'd love to get your help on it. But I want you to think about training at your church. See, we think of training in terms of, you know, stand here, hand out this, or this is our approach to kids or student, or here's how you park people in the parking lot. But that's the most basic level of training you can get for your team. It's important. But have you ever thought about going deeper? Like, you know, how do you get your whole team focused on the mission and your culture and on your values? It's a great question. And uh, a lot of churches don't do that. And so what I would encourage you to do, if you haven't checked it out yet, is go to trainedup.church and you will see the world of possibilities that awaits you. Reality is most churches never train 100% of their volunteers, not even on the most basic safety stuff. The average is about 60%. What if you could move that to 100% by moving your training online? And you can do all custom videos on your own, or if you're rolling your eyes right now going like, who has time for that? They have a lot already done. So it can be a, a, a pick and play between, you know, okay, I'm going to do this one on my own, and then we'll use a, a pre-existing video. You should check out trainedup.church. They got a library with over 600 videos on volunteer leadership and Bible training and a whole lot more. Over 20,000 people have already been trained using Trained Up, and 2,000 new people each month are connecting with online training. Don't miss out because you can go to trainedup.church, use the coupon code CARRY for 10% off your service for life. And I want to take you back to remember last month when we hit the 200th episode? Did you see those little Starbucks things? You know who we used for that? Design Crowd. And if you've got design needs, 
they're a website that really helps leaders and entrepreneurs outsource or crowdsource their design needs. And my guess is if you have a pulse, you have a need for design. I mean, what do you not need designed? A logo, you know, um, a program? Do you need a website design? Do you need a look, a business card? There's so many different design needs in today's world. You can check out designcrowd.com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y to learn more. And because you listen to this podcast, you receive up to $100 off your design project. That's a lot of money designcrowd.com slash carry and enter the promo code carry. So um, they can use designers from around the world to help you with that. And uh, yeah, if you haven't checked them out yet, make sure you do that. Hey, we're going to jump into my interview with Les McEwen. And I'm so excited to bring you this. And remember, at the end, I'm going to tell you a little bit about, uh, yeah, something going on in my life that I could use your help with. So here is my conversation with Predictable Success CEO, Les McEwen. McEwen. Well, it's such a thrill to have Les McEwen back on the podcast. As many of you know, he was with us earlier, one of the most downloaded episodes we've ever had, episode 112. And uh, also, for the last two years, he's been one of our keynote speakers at Rethink Leadership in Atlanta and absolutely brought down the house both times. Les, welcome back. It's great to be here, Kerry. Thanks for having me. Hi, everybody. Yeah. So um, you've made some, uh, it was curious, you called me a couple months ago and you said, hey, I just want to let you know about some changes I've made in my company. And this is fascinating to me because in episode 112, if you have not listened to it, you should definitely listen to it because it talked about the different stages of growth and development in an organization. And I just felt like you were reading my mail and every leader's mail about the different, what is it? There's seven or eight different uh, life stages of a congregation or uh, really just of any organization. Um, But you decided to make a change in your organization, predictable success. So tell us about that. Yeah, I had to, as the cool kids say, I had to eat my own dog food. Um, I was going through a period of time, which we all go through, I think, uh, occasionally when I just wasn't enjoying my work at all. And yet mm. I couldn't put a finger on what the problem was. And um, I, I just sort of had to go to a mountaintop about um, early summer last year, uh, 2017. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized I I spend all day, every day helping people grow their organizations. That's what I do. And I don't have the energy or the interest really in trying to both do that in helping other people and doing it for myself. I've done it 42 times. That's the basis on which I teach my model was, was that I was a serial entrepreneur and I've started and grown over 40 companies. And I just didn't want to do it again. Um, it was a very tough decision to, 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 to make because by that time we had a small team together, eight or nine of us. And, you know, then their dependents were part of a, a, a happy growing business. One of the hardest things that I've ever had to do, but I had to be true to myself. I had to be true to them. Uh, my son, who was um, uh, president of the business at that point, he he could see it coming because he'd been working in close proximity to me. But still, it was very hard. And I, I had to take uh, quite a few months just to think through the implications of that. And um, as of 1st of October last year, I went back to being what I've been for what I had been for 16 years, which is just a solo practitioner. I've got one executive assistant, and that's it. And you know, it it felt like getting out of jail, um, and, and not yeah. in the sense of any of the relational aspects, uh, but from the point of view of just being satisfied and 
enjoying what you're doing. Um, I got back to being able to do what I do best. I I was spending endless time. Our team were all virtual, so spending endless time on. Um, we were just talking about Skype conferences, Zoom conferences. We were talking about hiring another three people. I was involved in tons of internal stuff, and wasn't working for me. So back to just looking after the clients that I want to look after. And if I waking up and it's a sunny day and I don't want to do anything, I don't do anything. And and I appreciate the honesty and the candor of that. And I remember when we were talking through this the first time, and even say this in your books and in your writings, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with having a small organization that you just want to run. It's just we have we live in this culture where everything has to grow and become huge. And would you have been in Whitewater then by the time, you know, yeah. to use your own categories, by the time you're ready to shut yeah. it down? We were heading rapidly towards it um, and beginning to feel the initial effects of it. And I think that was actually the wake-up call for me because I, I thought, oh, oh, here we go, time number 43. I don't need to do any more research in this, so why do I want to go through it? And I, I do spend a lot of time, as you just intimated, particularly with um, uh, senior CEOs, senior pastors, people who are what I call the most senior uh, executive in an organization. Um, when they get into the whitewater stage, I spend a lot of time with them saying, look, you can make one of two decisions. You can decide to push through this and build a scalable organization, which is what I spend 90% of my time helping people do. Or you can decide to just rein in a bit and go back to being a fun, niche, boutique, you know, smaller organization with a cap on your growth that's serving a very explicit audience. And there is not a darn thing wrong with that. The one thing you don't want to do is not make a decision because you'll just end up yo-yoing around in whitewater uh, for years and years to come. And I couldn't make that decision. Uh, I, I couldn't stand by and not make that decision myself. And for me, uh, and for, so that I can help people actually push through into predictable success, it was important for me to just go back to the fun stage. I remember you saying to me that, and I think this is close to what you said, you said, I think I would rather help other people grow their company than grow mine at this stage. Is that it? Yeah. You know, in it's, it's exactly right. Yeah, I'm 62 years of age. Um, I'm enjoying what I, I, I love what I do. I was built to do this. My whole life would, would led me to, you know, be gifted with understanding this model, which I didn't make up, but I just uncovered. Uh, I just adore sitting with people, helping them um, understand and, and execute using that model. And I was getting further and further away from that. I was spending much, much more time, maybe 60, 70% of my time was internal uh, growth-related issues and just not what my heart is for me anymore. Uh, I want to be free to help other people push through all of that. And that's where we got. You know, this isn't in the notes, Les, but um, one of the questions I get regularly from church leaders is, is there anything wrong with being a small church? And of course, the answer is no. I think one of the differences between a privately held company like yours or any business you do is you kind of get to, like you're deciding the mission of predictable success. Whereas we're kind of entrusted with a mission as church leaders. And I think most church leaders want their church to grow, but we run into this tension, right? We want to run into this place where you hit white water uh, because your church is growing and maybe hit 200, 300, 400 on a Sunday, you can't get it all done. You're spending a lot of your time in meetings and you're frustrated and your systems are breaking. You can't hire people fast enough. And to get to predictable success, it's that tension between entrepreneurial vision, mission, and systems that work. But it takes a while to get there. And so 
vast majority, 85% of churches are 200 people or less. I'd love your take on, because I know you're, you're, you know, you spend majority of your time in the corporate world, but you understand church world uh, as a participant and also as a leader, as a consultant and thinker. Um, what would you say to those church leaders who are like, I just, I want to do with my church what you just did with your company? I'd say go for it. There's two strands, I think, in the response. The, the one is just literally what my response would be, which is, you know, I guess is valid or not valid. Is the next guy's, and my response would be go for it. I think it's much better personally to do one thing well than to try to do too much and end up doing none of it very well. You know, nobody gets served whenever the church is not doing a good job. Uh, and if that's where your heart is, then uh, I would absolutely say I think that's great. There are a lot of people that we all know who are performing, let's broaden this out a little bit, they are performing ministries, set the church concept aside for a moment, they're performing ministries on a very personal one-on-one, almost micro scale and having massive impact. Um, you mean, we, we, we could spend a lot of time talking about what the um, what the role of the individual versus the role of the church itself is. Uh, but for me, I think it's better doing something right and well uh, that's maybe smaller than trying to overreach and not doing it well. The second strand is the dogma strand, which is what is what are we called to do because of what the Bible tells us to do? And that's not in my wheelhouse. I, I can't advise on that. That's for yeah. people to work out for themselves in terms of their own approach. So um, when someone has, ha- has often has said to me, look, you know, I feel... I've got no option. I feel compelled that the, the scriptures tell me that I've got to grow this as big as I can, and that's fine. I, I'm not going to argue that. Point. Yeah, I, I see that. I appreciate you saying that. That's always been my sticking point with that. If it's like, you know, this is a hobby, this is something I do, this is my private company, well, that, you can decide whatever you want to do. If you want to run a mom-and-pop shop, run a mom-and-pop shop. The challenge I have as, you know, in all my years as a senior pastor is I didn't feel like it was my mission. And our mission was to help reach the world, and that involves scale. Uh, But I think you're right. You know, there's a certain point at which you just, you know, maybe some people go, you know what, I'm a small church pastor. and But what you're deciding, and this is so critical, Les, you've decided you're not going to grow predictable success beyond what one person and a half-time assistant can, can handle, correct? Correct. That's in terms of um, uh, personnel. That's not the route that I want to go down. I want. I want. Exactly. As I said earlier, I, I, I want to waken up and you know, obviously, I'll fulfill whatever commitments I put in my calendar for that day. But I, I don't want to feel again. I mean, I've been there so often, and, and when I was younger, in my twenties, thirties, forties, but to have the responsibility now of meeting payroll, and and therefore waking up in the morning and thinking, I have no option. I've got to do this and this and this. I've got to do yeah. it because other people are depending on me delivering it and gritting my teeth and going out and maybe taking on uh, work that, you know, w- wasn't exciting me. Um, yeah. Not that we did much of that, but uh, I did it on occasion. That's just not where I want to live. Uh, it really I is not. It. Uh, so it, it was it was one of the hardest decisions of my life, uh, probably the hardest business decision definitely of my life. And it would rank up there in the top five even outside of business in terms of personal decisions. There were a lot of implications um, around individuals and, and relationships that were so, so tough. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I didn't do it um, with a massive smile on my face from start to finish. I, I knew it was making the right decision, and I felt a sense of peace about it. Uh, and I'm very, very happy now that we've, I have managed to get to the point where the, 
transition is fully complete. I'm 100% convinced it was the right decision. But it was really tough to, to execute and implement. No, I can appreciate that. And uh, I mean, I've, I've heard it in your voice. I see it in your face as we're having this conversation. Um, but I think the trade-off that church leaders have to think about is you're like, this is just not going to be a big church. We're always going to be small. And if that's you know a feeling of your calling, then that's awesome. Um, for me, my challenge was I want to reach more people. And we're at that stage right now with the podcast. I mean, a year and a half ago, I told you, this was me and a half-time assistant. Now we have a team of three or four. Uh, it's growing. You wake up with that pressure every day. Uh, but I think I'm up for the journey. I, I'd like to help more sure. people, but I'm also a little bit younger than you are and haven't launched 42 companies. So uh, much respect young, in your direction. <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, maybe just to wrap up on the, on the growth yeah. or no growth thing from the church perspective, um, the one thing I would say is if you're going to do it, then do it well. If you're going to scale, learn yeah. how to scale. Don't just ram stam into it and think it'll all work out because it won't uh, it'll 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 bite you um so you know I'm not saying we need to be perfect or can be um but make a conscious decision you know say well, i'm going to scale this thing and learn how to scale you know and become good at it just as you know anything else that you would decide you're going to do be good at it well, and I would just encourage leaders, if you haven't listened to episode 112, just go back, do yourself a favor. It's free. Do it. People ask me all the time, what are your favorite episodes? Honestly, that would be in my top 10. I just love that episode. My whole life flashed before my eyes. It's extremely <laughs> accurate about the life cycle of any organization, including the challenges of scale. And uh, it's a little bit too true. Um, your your description of what happens in organizational theory. And on that note, Les, uh, last time we spent the whole podcast talking about that. We're going in a different direction. We're talking about teams now and your work um, around the idea of, of becoming a synergist or needing synergists on your team. But before we get that, you kind of added a decision-making matrix to the predictable success model of the life cycles of an organization. Can you describe that for us? Because I thought that was so valuable. Well, uh, uh, first thing I'd have to say is that the whole, um, it's a bit like a Neil Young concert. Um, I was once at a Neil Young concert where somebody was shouting out, asking for something, and Neil just shouted back, it's all one song. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's all one model. Um, these are not separate or disparate parts, um, uh, standalone items. They all interact with each other. So, the key, the, just the, the chicane, if you will, that this goes down is that uh, every organization, any group of two or more people trying to achieve common goals, so that obviously includes churches, um, goes through up to seven stages in development. Uh, I mean, two-second rebrief, uh, three growth stages, one peak stage, predictable success, where you can scale, and then three decline stages. What drives you from stage to stage or locks you into a stage is the specific mix of four leadership styles, visionary, operator, processor, synergist. It's that mix. If you think about that as the changing DNA of an organization that locks you in, prevents you from moving, or, and or helps you get to the next stage you want to get to. So the sequence in which the visionary, operator, processor, synergist emerge are critical in uh, pushing you through the growth stage into predictable success. What is hap happening overall, the, the whole the entire um, binary definition of the shift that happens when you move from fun, which is, hey, we're having fun, we're growing, 
but there's always a cap because we hit this whitewater stage. Shifting from there into predictable success, which essentially says we can scale to any size, um, uh, you know, the, the community that we work in will allow us to. Uh, the key difference is a shift, one binary shift away from something that I call heroic leadership. That's where essentially a visionary gets a bunch of hard charging operators and they just do whatever it takes. It's all energy. It's all constant motion. It's all push and shove, and it's great fun, and it's mm. exhausting, but it's righteously exhausting. Heroic leadership is essentially daily um, improvisation. We just come in, think it up, make it happen. And visionaries love that, right? Visionaries, visionaries love thrive it. And, off and, that. And actually, op- operators do too, because they get to do things, you know? Um, so the visionary and operator together in fun are essentially um, evidencing heroic leadership. Now, I don't mean necessarily that always that they're doing, you know, Superman type heroic things. Uh, I mean, mm. it, they ask forgiveness, not permission. They say yes to everything. They set enormous goals and then just somehow uh, they achieve it. The crux, the binary change that happens in moving from fun into predictable success is we move from heroic leadership which is such an exciting concept and so much small air fun to engage in, to something that's completely narcoleptic. It will put you to sleep, but it's fundamentally necessary. You've got to become capable of, listen for it, high-quality team-based decision-making. That's how you run a complex organization. Heroic leadership isn't scalable. You start to get misalignment. You start to get heroic acts happening all over the place that aren't aligned. They're not going in the right direction. They become less and less effective because you don't have all the information. It becomes less, you know, ready and far. It becomes far, 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 far. Heroic leadership, when you try to scale in that level, becomes chaotic. It becomes frustrating. It's not righteously exhausting anymore. It's just wearingly exhausting. So what we got to do is we got to start working together in teams. We can't have just a solo person making all the decisions anymore because it's too complex. We're increasingly working together in teams. And those teams have got to learn how to make high quality decisions. Problem is nobody tells you that. So we still keep trying to bat away on heroic leadership. It's not working. We don't know what to replace it with. We got to replace it with high quality team-based decision, which, which, which is a mechanic process. Now, final point on this. Does that mean that we step away uh, when we leave fun, get through predict- whitewater into predictable success, nothing heroic ever happens again? Far from it. It comes back in, but it comes back in on an overlay of some fundamentals, high-quality team-based decision-making. Then we go be heroic rather than just combusting random her- heroism all over the place, which is just at this point exhausting everybody. You know, the senior pastor comes back from a conference with 50 new things we're going to do. <laughs> And we've still got 25 of last conferences, you know, squirrels unworked through. And the detritus of those is lying around the place. Um, that has to go away. It has to become part of something much more structured, which I call high-quality team-based decision. Now, often, you know, we have the sort of one-man, one-woman theory of history, which is, you know, you look at Apple, you think of Steve Jobs. You look at Tesla, you think of Elon Musk. But even where you have that kind of charismatic leader, are you saying that those organizations, by definition, have to have moved to high-quality team-based decision-making, even though it may not appear that way if you're a casual yeah. observer from the outside? Absolutely. And one of the things that um, 
uh, clever and great leaders do is they continue to recognize this, this strong importance of a single individual acting as the sort of uh, flagship, uh, forward-facing face of the business. Uh, and so you mentioned Steve Jobs. If you look at his career, actually the first half of his career before he got fired, he was not capable of making that shift. And he was trying to do it all himself. When he came back um, the second time around, he came back as a different individual. And if you read, it's a wonderful biography of him by Walter Isaacson. And the very first words out of Steve Jobs' mouth in that biography on page two, uh, he says, when I came back to Apple, I wanted to build something that would last longer than myself. Right. And the rest of the book describes how he did that. And it was which, which arguably he did. We're seeing that right in real time right now. I think the next two years will tell. I think probably he did. Um, but he did it by developing really high-quality teams. You look at the caliber of the people that he's got at night in that organization. Look at Tim Cook, where he came from as an engineer. Um, yeah. this, uh, look at other people like Warren Buffett. I mean, classic example of a seeming one-man one band. Nobody has a better team of senior executives than Warren Buffett. Nobody. I mean, his team of CEOs are unbelievably good. It's one of the key things he does is pick good people. Jack Walsh seemed to be GE for many years. He was not. He built a massively brilliant team of uh, leaders, all of whom learned how to make good decisions. A great case study in this um, is to go and uh, uh, Google Alan Mulally's early years at Ford and right. watch how he built a team who could make, guess what, high-quality, team-based decisions. Because he had a bunch of high-quality leaders, but they weren't making team-based decisions. They were making decisions based very much on their own car brand. You know, So I'm not a car guy, so I, don't even, I couldn't tell you what Ford makes. They make Mustangs, right? So the Mustang <laughs> people were making decisions just for Mustang. You know, Forget about Ford. And he built uh, his, when he went in there, after two months, he wrote a mantra, one Ford. And that's mm. what he taught for the rest of his days, essentially high quality team-based decision-making. Well, and I think we've talked about this in other episodes of this podcast, but we suffer from that in the church world with mega churches. And you've met some of those leaders, but you know, you think of Life Church, you think of Craig Grishel, you think of Andy Stanley, you know, you think of Stephen Furtick, and you think Brian Tome, it's like, oh, there's just one person. And no, when you actually get behind the, the scenes, and we've had some of those other people on this podcast, they're incredibly high-capacity leaders making team-based decisions. It's just they tend not to make the headlines, right? Right. And a lot of uh, high-quality leaders don't want to make headlines either. They, they, you know, they're happy to have somebody who can do the front-of-house stuff. Um, just let me get on with being part of the team and making good-quality decisions. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to dive into... Um, the different people that function on that team. And you basically identify, I think it's four different personality types that I want to break down in some detail. And that's all in your book, The Synergist, which is an incredible read. Uh, you guys will link to it in the show notes. Um, let's start with visionaries. There's a lot of visionaries, thousands and thousands of visionaries listening to this podcast. Please describe our life for us. And how we ruin, ruin and inflict other people with our particular brand of poison? Well, let's start with the really good stuff. The good stuff about visionaries are that um, for many of them at some point in their life, they're going to be sitting at a kitchen table at 4 a.m. on and going to sleep with a yellow pad out doodling something that's going to become a new venture, whether it's a new business or a new church. Um, they're people who are driven. They, they, they have a high degree of need to create 
there's some, there's something else, which is a, a mirror side to it, which um, is a little sleeper fact, but becomes problematic later on. Most visionaries are highly driven for a need for autonomy and freedom. That's, mm. that's the, one of the keys, whether they'll admit it or not, why most visionaries start something. Now, in the business world, you could admit that freely. You can say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a typical entrepreneur. Stop working 40 hours a week for the man to work 80 hours a week for me because I'm working for me, right? In the church, it's a little bit harder to admit that because it sounds self-serving. But that need to for autonomy and freedom is a strong driving uh, motiv- motivating factor for visionaries. Um, usually, they're highly successful. The, the folks who start new ventures, new churches, new businesses are highly successful in where they were. In the business world, they're usually getting paid about 125 to 150% of market because they're high performers. These aren't people who are starting something new because they're stuck. They're visionaries who are driven to do it. So they're the high risk takers who go out and start this, the new thing. They're also incredibly resilient. You know, you knock them down, they get up. You knock them down, they get up. You knock them down, they get up. That's why the, the, the new venture will succeed. Um, new ventures, all new ventures, 80% of them fail in the first three years. The number one reason uh, the 20% get through is because there's resilient, resilient visionary who will just not take no for an answer, will keep on going. Where we start to, uh, I have a visionary tendency myself, where we tend to really become uh, uh, crazy makers for other people is that we are essentially starters. We love to start things. The idea of starting something new gives us an endorphin rush. There's sort of like a prickly heat we get that we got to scratch the idea of something new. Oh, I can yep. feel it now, you know? So every time we, we have a conversation with somebody who's another visionary or we go to a conference or we just go on vacation, we come back with a yellow pad with 20 new things we're going to do. And the people we work with, to them, this is just crazy. Uh, this is exhausting. Uh, it seems unfocused. It's taking us away from our core mission. Uh, it's not thought through. It's hyperbolic. Uh, but they don't tell us any of that because we're right. usually the ones that are a little higher on the status totem pole. So they don't get to tell us that. And and people learn to manage us. They learn to get deaf uh, situationally. They learn to postpone things to see whether we really mean it. They learn to interpret other signals that tell us we're serious about this one. Uh, but, you know, we get managed as visionaries a lot more than we think we are. Hmm. And I, I think um, I think this was in the synergist. I can't remember, but you describe. Uh, I think his name was Andy coming into a meeting. This this composite visionary. Talk a little bit about that and how visionaries tend to operate. Because you started by saying autonomy and freedom. So just so we can see ourselves in the mirror, what do we do at meetings? <laughs> well, the, the, the classic model for a visionary is to call an all hands meeting. That's you know crazily essential and must have it for 8 a.m. Thursday morning because there's something really, really important we've got to talk about. Uh, and then turn up late for that meeting Yes. and talk, proceed to talk about something completely different because your interest in it has waned since then or you've had a side meeting where you solved it or you just got bored with it. Uh, so uh, that's one um, <laughs> common uh, pattern. Another one is to being fully engaged in the meeting during the times we're brainstorming, talking about exciting big things, but the moment somebody says, okay, would you turn to tab four on the spreadsheet that I provided you with to go through the detail? Of, <laughs> yeah. The visionary just, you know, suddenly or leaves point, the room, a, right? Leaves the there's room. A, there's a phone call, an urgent phone call that comes in. Um, <laughs> or, you know, hey, I tell you what, guys, you know, you don't need me for this. You go ahead. You discuss that and, you know, let me know when you're done. Now, that, that 
that's sort of finish for about a third the way up fun. Uh, after that point, it begins to become problematic because we've now got an increasing number of the other styles of people running things in the business, the operator, the processor, um, sooner just aren't on the scene yet. Um, and absent the visionary, um, disciplining themselves to stay there and repeat the core mantra of whatever the organization is, alignment starts to fragment. Mm-hmm. We have just the operators and the processors left alone without the center, without the visionary. And people don't know what the visionary wants or doesn't want. And so what happens is the visionary becomes a one-person bottleneck. Nothing is getting decided in groups. People are bringing stuff in and putting it all on his or her desk for his, him or her to give the, their blessing on. Uh, and, you know, that begins to become highly problematic pretty early once the business becomes a, uh, or the church becomes of any size whatsoever. There's lots and lots of problems associated with <clears throat> visionaries, and I've done your assessment, so I know I'm a visionary. That's my dominant um, characteristic or whatever you want to call it. But remind us before we move to operators why visionaries are a gift. Well, the reason they're a gift is they're the one that brings the vision. I mean, they're usually charismatic in some way. They're usually good communicators. They may or may not have the gift of the gab. You know, they, they, many of them are vocally great communicators, but all of them are great communicators in, in the sense that in some way they get other people to see that there is this vision they have and to want to help them. And so they become the unifying factor as to where we're headed. Where are we going? That's what they bring. And to to be able to consistently spread that vision to other people, it's a vital part of growing and scaling the, the church and, or, or the business. Absent of visionary, everything will just flatline. There's, there, you know, we, we've got it in scriptures. Without a vision, the people will perish. And it's absolutely true. The problem is having a visionary stay disciplined and focused on that vision and not squirreling away at 20 other things and diluting what we're trying to achieve overall. I don't know whether you have actual statistics on this or whether this is just a, a gut reaction, but when you think of all new churches, new businesses, all the new things that get started, what percentage of those things would be started by visionaries? Of successful ones, it's way up beyond 90%. Um, yeah. there, are, there are two two factors that make any new venture successful. Um, one is the existence of a visionary right at the outset, uh, and the other is a ruthless focus on what it is that you're trying to achieve. Um, uh, in a down economy, when uh, to get technical, whenever things become really tough, so the 2008 post-recession phase or mid-recession phase, um, the number of things started by people who are not visionaries rises because people do something out of lack of options. And so we get operators, processors, other people starting new businesses, and, and they don't succeed because they're not visionaries. They don't have a vision. They're just thinking, there's nothing else I can do, so I'll do it. I can't uh, get a job, so I'll start this, this accounting Correct. firm or whatever, Correct. and then it's gone in two years. Correct. And yeah, and then interestingly, the same thing happens when we're in a real fluffy economy, when things get ridiculously overblown, like the first internet boom era. Um, Non-visionaries look around and think, oh, anybody can do this. This is a doddle. I'll try it. And so we get a lot of businesses that get started up and get crushed because there isn't a visionary in in there at the start. And everybody thought that they could do it without it. Everybody's doing copycat, me too stuff. Everything gets cannibalized and those businesses fail. So uh, as a long answer to your question, the short answer is, Successful businesses, 90% and above, are started. Successful churches, 
almost always a visionary, almost always somebody frustrated with what they were in before, frustrated with the team they're working with, frustrated with the lack of growth, uh, or and or see an opportunity and just say, hey, there's nobody there. I'm going to go do this. Those are visionaries. Yeah. So in other words, without visionaries, there's pretty much nothing new and society grinds to a halt. In many yeah, I, everything becomes the status quo. Uh, and, yep. you know, entropy is such that it rarely stays like that. Actually, things start to go backwards. Uh, visionaries bring the forward, yeah, right. the, the, the directive forward motion. Okay. So that's visionaries. Um, we also have some operators listening. That is the second leadership style profile. Talk to us about operators. Well, an operator is a symbiotic twin of the visionary, and their existence is just as important in getting the new uh, church or business uh, to a state of viability. A visionary left on their own uh, is a mad scientist, uh, is, you know, the crazy person who keeps playing around in the lab and coming up with something yeah. new and something new and something new. Um, and so most visionaries understand intuitively whether they've ever used my terminology or not. They, they have an understanding that they get really, really irritated with detail and minutiae. Sure, they can do it if they absolutely have to, but it drives them crazy. They want to start new things. And so what they do is they intuitively hook up with someone who is what I call an operator, and that is just somebody who's a ruthless finisher. They just do things. They just do things. Tell them what to do. They do it. Now, it's usually not pretty. Uh, it's usually the straightest line, uh, straightest uh, distance between two points, straight line. They will go through brick walls to make things happen. You've got to be careful what you ask them to do because they're going to do it. So you, you yeah. don't want to, you know, you want to make sure you point them in the right direction. And operators are essentially the ruthless finisher. So here we've got our creative visionary who's the starter coming up with things, our operator who's the ruthless finisher, and they become symbiotic. One can finish the other's sentences. And the operators become really, really attuned at uh, what I would call managing the visionary, you know, knowing what to ignore, knowing what to not rush on because it's probably not critical or vital, knowing what should be done right now. But what they don't want to do, our operators, is they don't want to sit in meetings. They don't want to have um, brainstorming sessions. They don't want to sing Kumbaya. They just yeah. want to get on with stuff. And so that's a highly effective team. They're not that efficient. We're not, we don't have a lot of efficiencies going on right now. We're sort of reinventing the wheel every time we something, something needs done, we do it. It's a, it can be a bit like Groundhog Day. Didn't we do this last month? Yeah. Yes, we did. We've got to do it again this month because this is not a pair that put a lot of systems in process. They're not leaving an audit trail behind. They're just having fun. You know, hey, well, let's, let's start a children's ministry. Sure, let's start a children's ministry. Let's find a good, <laughs> a guy could be a good pastor. We go get an operator mindset, put him in charge of children's ministry. Let's do it. Um, and so we're just doing stuff. And it is, that's the essence of fun is we think it, we do it. And it's, it's actually, you know, it's very compelling and it's addictive. Think it, do it. Think it, do it. I mean, why wouldn't you want to live like that? Uh, problem is that if you're good at it, you get bigger and bigger and bigger. And the, the, the thinking and the doing begin to become separate. We get to the point mm. where we're still thinking a lot, but we're not doing it. It's not being implemented. And why not? Because it's become too complex for us just a tap dance and, and improvise every day. And that's, that's our cue to begin to think, well, maybe there's, is there another style apart from the visionary and the operator who can help us here? And that's the processor. Is there a stage in organizational life that visionaries intuitively start looking for operators? Like not, sometimes a lot of people start alone, church planters, uh, small business people, 
Uh, is there a certain level at which you kind of realize, hey, if this is going to even live next month, I got to find somebody? Uh, let me give you two answers to that. The one which you should start is right away. It's it's right. a, it's a from birth thing. You really need someone right away. Um, of course, there are monetary implications. Even in a church, there are resource implications to that because you've got another mouth to feed here. Um, and any visionary will, within weeks, certainly months, realize, hey, if I really want to make this happen, I need somebody else to help me make it happen. Yeah. There's one exception, and it's it's a real uh, strange sort of a um, trap to get into. It's what I call the artisan trap. And that is where someone, and many people are, um, have, are, are capable of operating in both the visionary and operator mode. We've been talking so far as if everybody has only got one style. Most of us got at least two. Some people have got three styles yeah. that they can move in, a few or even four. But there are a lot of people who are essentially visionary operators, that, that they can be strong visionaries and they can be strong operators. And you would think, if what I need to, to get my business going, I'm um, a church planted and, and operative, is a visionary and an operator. Well, hey, I made up. I can do both. Well, what happens, in fact, is you get caught in a cycle. And it's easier to see in the commercial world. I, I call it the sell-do cycle. You got to sell. You got to do the visionary thing. You go out there and you sell. And then, oh, wait, I've got something to do here. I've got to turn into operator mode and I've got to do that. But while right. you're doing the operator side, the visionary bit isn't happening. So you're not evangelizing. You're not preaching. You're not building the size of the church. Oh, I've got, oh, I've got to go find out. You've got to do the operator stuff. Let's go find a little garage I can lease. Let's work. I get <laughs> some music equipment. You do all that. But while you're doing all that, you're not doing the visionary stuff. So you start going V O V O in a cycle in a circle and you're not getting bigger you've got to get to the point and listeners i'm pointing with two fingers on a parallel course here where you you're, you can v and o at the same time not switching between the two and i and i I'm used to i don't work in the um early struggle startup stage anymore but when i did i worked with a lot of highly frustrated really competent people who were bogged down because they were really good at being a visionary and really good at being an operator so it took them a lot longer to realize I've got to choose one, which is typically the visionary style, and go find an external operator. So just to make that clear, if you were just, say, a graphic designer, it's like, I don't have any business, I don't have any business. You go out, drum up some business, make some sales, and then you realize, uh-oh, these portfolios are due by the end of the month. Now i got to work on them. Right. So you're doing all the right. design work. You haven't got any sales, and you're just in that cycle. Is that is that what you're saying? That's it's, it's exactly right. And so you're going through the same cycle over and over again, and it's exactly the same amount of income by and large. You know, nothing's getting any bigger. That cycle that you're in isn't growing every time you go around. It's not like crossing, right. going Monopoly and getting another 200 bucks. It's just the same size. You become, a, 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 I call it the artisan trap. You end up becoming an artisan. You end up living an artisan life where, you know, I had a good friend many years ago who made world-class guitars. He only needed to make the price he was charging. He only needed to make two guitars in a, in a year to then live the next year, you know, on the beach. He chose to live like that. He would make for a year and go enjoy himself for a year. But what you do is you get sucked into that existence if you're a good VO. You go out and sell. Then you, you, you buckle down and do the work. And then during that time, you're not selling. So you got to go back out and sell again. Yes. And the same thing can happen in the church world where, yeah. you know, you're moving from visionary, evangelical growth side of stuff to the, you know, the nuts and bolts, make it happen. 
you know, and it's very hard to get up there and preach at this, uh, having just stacked the chairs and knowing that the, that gurgling you just heard meant that there's a leak in the plumbing. Uh, you know, it's really hard to do all of that together and learning or, or finding the resource, I'm sorry, to get a parallel path in those is very important for uh, growth. Let me try theory out on you because I work with a lot of church leaders, but 200 is the, you know, it is the barrier in the church. 85% of churches never get past. And uh, where we started earlier today, let's just assume there's a few people who decided, you know what, I'm just going to have a small church. But I think the vast majority are like, no, I want to reach my community. There's what I've started talking about because I've got this breaking 200 course is the leaky bucket syndrome. So, in other words, you're bringing new people into your church but you can't get past 150. It's like, well, there's new people every weekend. Why are we not growing? And then you're kind of growing for a little while, but then you're working on the systems. You're kind of doing everything yourself. Can that be uh, a VO problem in the church where you really haven't got anybody closing the back door? Yeah. There was an analogy I used for many years until I began to sound really weird. I'll pull it back out again. The listeners can enjoy it. (laughs) Back in the day when I was a kid, there were a lot of TV programs back in the United Kingdom where I grew up that were essentially uh, variety shows, music hall shows. They bring these acts out and they do stuff. Um, and one guy used to come out uh, uh, a lot who I loved uh, was this guy who used to balance um, dinner plates on top of long bamboo poles. He would throw oh, yeah. a dinner plate up on this pole and spin it. Uh, and then he'd throw another up and then another up. And he would, you know, that, I think the record was up in there in the hundreds somewhere. And, you know, we, we'd sit there every Sunday night, transfixed by this guy who, by the time he had 50 up, was having to start to run back to the first one, which was starting to sway a little bit uh, and give it a little shake. And then he'd go and run, put another two up, come back and have to touch four more. And this got, you know, and so it gets to the point where you start to hear crashing crockery, right? <laughs> and at that point, you know, it's we're going to reach an end, um, and that's the crashing crockery is the uh, equivalent of, of your leaky bucket. That um, it, what you can do to maximize the model and get your uh, to use the model to maximize the numbers that you've got at that point is you can have not just a central V visionary, typically the senior pastor, with a, a bunch of really good hard charging O's who are doing individual ministry work. If you start to bring in people who are uh, what I call in my world are OV. So they're primarily O's, but they've got enough vision to make sure that pastoral work is being done to the extent that they're looking out for the potential leaky bucket. Uh, then you can pump that up a little bit further. You might get to 200, 225, 250. But at some point, you're going to need process. You're going to need yeah. to be able to fully depend that what happens to people, the experience they have when they come in, is the quality of it is assured irrespective of where you are on any one particular day or where any irrespective of any where one person is on any particular day that we've built the muscle of quality engagement we've built built the muscle of world-class pastoral interaction um, and that you know it sounds counterintuitive that requires systems and processes just as equally as it requires good pastors uh, and and it's that it's at that point where we start to bring people in and say, okay, well, we, you know, intuitively, again, may not use my world uh, of terminology, but there's a recognition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to we need to codify this and make sure it gets, it's getting done right. We can't just hope that people have a good experience. So let's take like the welcoming uh, experience for somebody new 
how does how, how do we codify that? How do we make sure that it, it's it's put together in a way that is systemic and we can trust that it's happening? What happens is we start to bring in for the first time people that I call processors. Those are people whose mindset is around things like codification, uh, standardization, uh, repeatability. That we, we we don't you know discuss the same thing twenty times. Let's do it, write it down, repeat it. And those processors bring something new for the very first time to the church that uh, becomes a, a the first sort of point of potential. Um, to be honest, it's the first point a point of existential potential existential conflict, which is that visionaries and operators are highly effective as we've seen before not terribly efficient. Hmm. Our processors are all about being efficient. But what it can also often feel like to the vision and operators is that they don't seem that as concerned as we are about being effective. In other words, do they really care about the congregation as much as we do? Why would you harp on about me not filling in that dumb spreadsheet when we've got people who are hurting? Well, because filling in that dumb spreadsheet is an essential step in a helping people who are hurting in a really um, predictable manner, in a way that we can trust and depend and not just hope. And so the, when the, we've had the visionary and operators, there are now multiple operators working you know, for a while, hand in glove and seamlessly, now we have this processor mindset, which is often, um, not always, but it's, it's most often uh, personified in one or two people who we've just brought in or we've given more responsibility to, and they start to seem, it feels like they're diluting our mission. They're too interested in stuff that's non-essential. Whereas we've got to keep reminding ourselves the whole point we're doing this is to do the essential repeatedly in a high quality manner over and over and predictably. When you think about a visionary personality and a processor personality, there's almost always conflict initially um, without some awareness. Can you describe how the three different personality types would interact in a typical meeting or conversation, what a visionary would say, what an operator would say, what a processor would say, and how they get on each other's nerves? Absolutely. Well, for a processor, we've already seen the thumbnail of the vision. We've got somebody, big picture thinker, high risk taker, um, you know, really wants to change the world. Um, it, it gets irritated if stuff is, you know, small ball, wants um, always wants to move the needle in what they're doing. I've got a, a ruthless, hard-charging operator just wants to do things. Now here comes our processor who thinks linearly, um, uh, who if I don't, I, I, I'm still personally not convinced of this left brain, right brain difference, but if it's right, they're definitely left brain people. They think um, uh, on a linear basis, they're risk averse. They're there yeah. to make sure that this thing is right. They will cut they will measure twice, at least twice, to cut once. Um, they want to make sure that we do things the same. Uh, they're not, they loathe hyperbole. Processors get turned off when they hear people talking about things in sweeping general terms, particularly if somebody's sort of averaging up all the time, you know. Oh, it was great. I mean, we must have had, uh, must have had 200 people in that on Sunday. When, yeah, yeah. you know, the processor knows because um, he or she put the chairs out, there were 117. But, you know, for the for the visionary, anything over 100, 200, right? 200, Order 1,000. Right? I'm pretty sure it was 1,000. Yeah. yeah, if you yeah. count that again. Yeah. And yeah. The processors get irritated about that. They, they also, they want, 
they want data um, to be the basis of a decision, which is a crucial shift because in early fun, anecdote is our basis for decision. An anecdote is fine in early fun because it's a really good proxy for data. Um, everything's relatively simple. So if you've got a story to tell about something that went wrong, it probably went wrong and it's probably important to fix it. But by the time we get to the stage where we have our, our processor involved, anecdote is no longer a proxy for data. It's, it, it's incomplete. It's just that now. It's an anecdote. And the plural of anecdote is not a trend, not anymore. It, it, it might be or it might not be. You've got to go get the data, and the processor wants to get the data. So what typically happens, I mean, uh, you can see it in, in very simple terms. I like to tell the story of, um, you know, how would, a, how would an operator move a photocopier, to walk up to the photocopier, unplug it and push it to wherever it needs to go? How would a processor move a photocopier they'd send a memo you know on on uh, june the third the photocopier and removal committee will approach the photocopier from the south side of the building and a visionary was we have a photocopier wow that's great <laughs> i boy had a photocopier you know i gotta go i got something to do. one of the crucial things that happens and this is vital is that up until this point um most everything was decided on a unitary or binary basis. In other words, some info came in and somebody made a decision and then you just went and did it. It's heroic leadership, right? I see this needs done. We had a we had a quick snow snap. Um, the car park needs um, shoveled clean. I just went and did it. That's you know how you yep. make heroic leadership decisions. Either unitary, you do it on your own, or binary, you meet somebody, uh, you send somebody an email or you bump into them in the corridor and you say, hey, do you think we should do this? Yes, we should. Let's do it. We do it. As we've got to the point where we're bringing the processor in more and more, guess what? High quality team-based decisions are required. So we start having these, you know, the, the meetings, meetings, oh, meetings. Meetings start to become the bane of the church or the organization's life. And here's the crucial thing that happens. It becomes a visionary versus processor environment. Yeah. Why? Because the operator absents themselves from the meetings. They will rather open a paper clip up and stab themselves in the eye than sit through these excruciating meetings, which are all, you know, anyway, and, and we start to hear from operators things like, I've got a job to do. I've got something I've got to get done. They try not to get involved in all of this. And they just say, look, I'll tell you what, the rest of you just make a decision. Tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it. I, I, you know, just tell me. And so the operators begin to absent themselves from the decision-making and it becomes visionary versus processor. It's That's not big enough. It's not bold enough. It's not moving the needle enough versus that's just hyperbolic. You don't have the information for that. That won't stand the test of time. And we start to get gridlock in the process of decision-making. Or we could do what actually happens in the real world most of the time is that the visionary is higher up the authority or status vision. Uh, 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 totem pole, and they end up dominating and get frustrated with the processor and will either eventually let the processor go or will strip their um, actual delegated authority down to such a small level that they're not really part of the leadership team anymore. And we go back to where we were before in fun. We start doing it all the way we did before. Then guess what? We get bigger and someday we realize, oh, gee. We hired another we processor, processor and here we are. <laughs> Groundhog Day. As you say, yeah. Les, exactly it's right. got to be, you know, sitting in enough meetings over the course of any of our lives who are listening, it must be very difficult not to fall into the space of, look, we just need to figure out who's right. 
because the processor is convinced he's right. The visionary is convinced she's right. The operator is quietly convinced that they're right. What do you do with the I'm right, who's right dynamic that shows up in so many leadership circles? Uh, well, the first thing I would say is that when we use that terminology uh, about who's right, what we usually mean, and it's not necessarily done in a manipulative way, um, but if you scratch beneath the surface, what usually what we mean is that solution you're suggesting doesn't scratch my itch. It doesn't, mm. if I'm a visionary, it doesn't scratch my visionary itch. It doesn't make me feel like it's big and bold. Uh, or if you're a processor, it doesn't scratch my itch because it, I don't feel like we've done enough work on it. So what we usually mean is not this is right or that's right or this is wrong or that's wrong. It's not scratching my itch. And th this is where um, in, the, in the only part of this model that I didn't see sort of whole cloth, the one part that evolved over years, my understanding of it evolved over years, um, is that this is where the vital role of the synergist, the fourth style, comes in. And it only becomes valid at the point where we're just about to emerge out of whitewater and we're moving towards predictable success, the stage where we can scale, we can put our foot in the gas pedal and the car goes forward. At that point, the sort of secret sauce, if you will, if there's any part of this whole model that, as I say, I didn't make it up, I just, I just codified what was out there. If there's any part of this that really is the um, trigger for longevity in terms of scaling, that you don't just have a burst of scale and growing, but it, it's maintained over a long time, is the understanding of the synergist role. The synergist role is a learned style. The other three styles are visceral. We come out of the womb, so far as I can see, predominantly visionary operator or processor. There is a fourth learned style. Very few people have it um, uh, naturally, but most of us learn it. And it's a style I call the synergist style. And it's quite simply, it's, it's, there's no, uh, it's, it's nothing complex about this. It's a leadership style that says, um, and I've got a specific phrase for this, I call it the enterprise commitment. I call it the 20 most powerful words in business. I, I don't disagree with that. And the enterprise commitment is essentially the synergist's credo. And it's, it goes like this. When I'm in a group or team environment, so in other words, anytime I'm not alone, when I'm in a group or team environment, I put the interests of the enterprise, the thing that I'm here working for, ahead of my own. Simple mm -hmm. as that. But I'm a group or team environment, I put the interest of the enterprise ahead of my own. Now, what I make clear to folks is, when I said you're going to put the interest of the enterprise ahead of your own, I don't mean things like what your compensation package is, what car you're driving, whether you've got a Windows 10 or whatever. Uh, I'm talking about the need to scratch your visionary operator processor itch. That you, you put that to one side. That what we're going to do is we're going to make the best decision on the interests of the enterprise, the thing we're here to discuss. So it might right. be, should we start a second Sunday morning meeting? It might be a discussion about, should we start video conferencing our uh, meetings? It could be, you know, do we need to buy a new carpet? Whatever you're there to discuss, the synergist commitment says, the enterprise commitment says, I'm going to put the interest of the enterprise ahead of my own. Now, why is that? I mean, it's just words. People who are naturally synergists would say, why would you even waste time saying that? Isn't that how everybody thinks? The answer is for visionary operators and processors, it's not. And just recognizing that, the simple thing. So I teach a day and a half um, uh, program uh, called Synergize Your Team. And it's about teams working in a synergistic way. I tell everybody that by 9.30 on the first morning, we'll have done 60% of the work. 
because all we're going to do is we're going to read and disassemble the enterprise commitment. And you just, if you're an honest, upright, mature adult, if you will go into non-trivial discussions simply with that mantra in your head, you will make better decisions. It will just, it, it depersonalizes it. It means I'm not pushing back against Kerry because he's being too visionary and it's not floating my processor boat. I'm genuinely thinking, okay, do we need to do more research in this or not? And so the enterprise commitment is the, is the first start and a big start uh, to getting visionary operators, processors not to be in their corners. I know this is a big question, but how would one go about becoming a synergist? How do you get to that place? Is it like emotional intelligence? It's just a learned behavior and you become self-aware and you're like, okay, go ahead and speak. Tell me about all the spreadsheets we need to accomplish our goal, right? How, how do you well, do that? Um, I, it, it is advanced common sense. There's no, uh, you know, there's no blue pill that you can take. Um, what I would say is that the process is um, uh, largely just a, a change in direction on how you think. I'm pointing listeners to my temples because that yeah. four inches between a leader's ears are really where it all happens. And for that reason, what tends to happen is this. The first people who get it are visionaries. They tend to be the first ones to say, wait a minute, hold on, hold on, hold on. I now recognize that I'm really, really exhausting my people and teeing them off. The enterprise commitment would lead me to believe I need to start saying no a little more often because the only person that that's really um, scratching an itch for is me. That's one of the things visionaries can't do. They can't say no. They say yes to nearly everything. Uh, so I need to start saying no for the rest of the team, for their sake. I need to stop getting to the point where if I see something that that is so exciting that I want it to be so, that I won't listen to what we need to know to understand whether it's actually applicable or not. And I don't know, a bunch of other mechanical things happen. The reason I think visionaries see it first is typically they're the one with the most uh, in a church world, this is not quite as obvious as it is in the uh, commercial world, but but it usually is there. Uh, they are usually the ones who have got most of their uh, personal identity tied up in what this thing is. Uh, they started it. It felt like their baby. And so they want it to work. And they're therefore the first one to say, oh, oh, I see. This is great. This will help. Now, they're the ones that find it hardest to stick with it. But if they can do that, if they can, we're not trying to stop people from being visionaries. We're trying to turn them into visionary synergists. This is mm. not or. This is and. You're not becoming a synergist instead of being a visionary. A lot of particularly visionaries that I talk to are fearful of that. You, you know, what, if, if I lose my visionary edge, we're dead. And that's right. You're right. Yeah. We're not going to tell you to stop being a visionary. You're going to be a visionary synergist. The second ones, interestingly enough, you get it, are processors. They come along quite quickly mm. afterwards. Uh, so we're helping processors become processor synergists, learn that they don't have to have 100% guarantee about everything, learn that they can start with their conclusions. They don't have to tell everybody the uh, years of work they put into getting there. You know, start with the final slide, not the first slide, a whole bunch of other mechanical things. Why do they move into that quick? I think it's because they're used to working out logically how to fix something. And this makes a lot of sense when they see it. The folks right. that are really tough, that find it really hard to do this are operators. Operators find it very hard. They, they actually don't, if you were to um, you know, force them in a corner and, and make them tell the truth, 
But many operators just don't like synergists as people. They seem a little sleazy. They seem too concerned of being people pleasers. Uh, again, this is much more so in the commercial world. In the church world, actually the faith-based world in general, I, I even broadened out to the cause-based world, there are typically a lot more synergists because it's a self-filtering process. If you've got a synergistic mindset, which is you want to work through other people, you'll often go towards a cause-based, faith-based, or church-based uh, organization because it feels like you're getting a lot more opportunity to do that. By the way, one of the, reason, one of the results of that is that in a lot of smaller churches, there are a lot of very frustrated synergists because there's nothing to synergize. We've just got visionaries and operators who are perfectly happy, perfectly happy, and doing a good job and trying to synergize and we'll just screw with that. So that in a lot of small churches, there are a lot of very frustrated synergists. Can we you need say to go more about that? Bigger. How, do, how does that show up? That's fascinating. Are people feeling that they're not being heard, that they're being left in the sidelines, that uh, we're not talking enough about people's needs, um, when in reality, that's all happening in the fun environment very fast between the visionary and operators. Yes, they, of course, they care intensely about um, uh, people's needs, um, but it just is, we're not so big that we have to, you know, step back and have a Thursday morning meeting to talk about pastoral needs. It happens on the fly like that. And, you know, somebody say, hey, do you know, I, I saw Jenny wasn't there on Sunday morning and I've been really concerned about it. I got it. I got it. I got it. I'll, I'll see her Monday afternoon. Um, it's, it's happening like that. And people who are synergists who, who want to devote the majority of their time to those types of things are feeling like they can't get their hands into anything. It's all, it's all happening in such an unstructured manner. Um, and also there's no conflict. Uh, so the key, synergist's key role is to help um, smooth the conflict between visionary operators and processors. Well, we don't even have processors at this point um, in the senior team. It's just the visionary operators who are operating quite fine. Um, and so you end up with a lot of synergists that are just frustrated because they don't feel that they're contributing. And many of them would be, uh, would be more fulfilled in larger churches that have a clear synergistic expressed need at senior level. Fascinating observation. It really is. Where you can see it, if you just move the focus a little bit into the commercial world, is um, often in organizations that are uh, smaller, they'll bring in someone like an HR or a culture team builder too early, and they'll just get frustrated and leave because there's <laughs> it's a synergistic role and there's nothing to synergize. Isn't that interesting? So processors show up when the organization's a little bit larger. Out of and again, I mean, if you're with 50 people, what is there to process? Really, it can be done, you know, almost shoebox accounting. Not quite. You should never do Perfect. that in the church, but you know, it's pretty simple, pretty easy to understand. And and synergists really don't have much of a role because there's not as much to synergize, which is fascinating to me. Which is why high capacity leaders tend to gravitate toward larger organizations. I would think. Yeah, and also one of the things that happens is, you know, this is a, not the most uh, uplifting aspect of church life to talk about, but it's there, is that sometimes what happens is that those folks who have a high need for synergy begin to build a little inner ministry within the church of uh, reaching out to highly needy people um, and, and start to become uh, overly focused on finding a group of highly needy people and you get the, you know, uh, I'm sure we've all seen it. Uh, you know, you get a small group that 
it's almost become a victim mentality. It's dysfunctional. Mm. It's it's feeding into someone's need to be synergistic. I mean, all of these styles you can be they can be used for good or, or for ill. And um, you know, an, an unfulfilled synergist can sometimes end up look casting around to find somebody who they can be synergistic with, or a group of people who they can be synergistic with, and that uh. becomes into this dysfunctional uh, sort of arena. Um, where you get malcontents, uh, you know, coming in. Anyway, that's not a positive side of the uh, coin, but sometimes it's happening because of uh, an understandable and non-judgmental issue. It's just I- I'm highly synergistic and I've, I feel like I've no, I've no more to exhibit it. So, you know, as, as we've talked about before, it can often be more helpful. Go find somewhere a little larger where, you know, you're, you're, you really are fundamentally required as part of the warp and woof of this church uh, for it to continue to scale. Can you give us some steps if people are saying, I think I would need to become, want to become more synergistic? What would be a couple of places to start? Uh, and if you need to break it down for visionary operator, processor, great. Or maybe there's just universal steps that anybody could take to start becoming more synergistic. Um, well, I'm going to say two, two really tacky things just to start with, uh, but they just happen to be true and I can't avoid saying them. Um, the first place you should start is go buy a copy of The Synergist, not because I need the yes. $1.72 or whatever I get, but because that's why I wrote it. I wrote it yeah. because so many people said to me, how do I be a synergist? And the interesting thing is this, um, uh, just like predictable success, the first half of The Synergist are a series of, of very entertaining, highly insightful, he says modestly, um, vignettes, you know, <laughs> uh, stories of it's like just to make sure people get it. And they say, they read it and say, yeah, I got it. I, I've seen these folks and I've seen myself in this, as, as you reflected on. The second half of the book are a series of mechanistic steps. Very few people move to reading the mechanistic steps because, you know, there's, there's, there's no fun in that, right? But it's there. It's all there. Uh, and secondly, uh, free of charge up on, on our website, if you go to predictablesuccess.com, the resources part, there are a whole bunch of videos there free where I talk about how to be a good visionary synergist, how to be a good processor synergist, how to be a good operator synergist. But to, to, to summarize those real quickly, I'd say, yes, the fundamental core uh, place to start with is the enterprise commitment. It's very rich. It sounds, you know, it sounds thin, um, but it, it's well worth, we have printable um, uh, uh, cards you can produce. It's well worth using it as training wheels in all of your meetings for three to six months. Just have somebody read it out at the start uh, when I'm in a group or team environment, hey, is that what we're in? Yes, it is. I will put the interest of the enterprise, what are we here to discuss today? Whatever it is, ahead of my own. You need to be a visionary, an operator, or a processor. So that's the first one is uh, get to, to be comfortable with and learn and, and inculcate the um, enterprise commitment. Um, the second thing is uh, to, as a team, discipline yourselves uh, to something that um, I call dollar bill decision making. The Brits call it cabinet responsibility, and it takes just two minutes quickly to set up. One of the things that will make you um, act much more as a synergist is if what you commit to overtly is that when we as a team make a decision, we all uphold it 100% when we walk out the door. 100%. You don't get to dissent one iota. You support it completely. And the British government, the cabinet there, uh, that's... You know, that's part of how they operate. And if you're a cabinet minister in the UK and you dissent from a decision made by the cabinet, you resign. You resign. If you, and if, uh, you're, if you're not prepared to resign, you're 100% committed to it. 
Now, an interesting thing happens when you uh, implement cabinet responsibility and hold yourselves to it, so that when you go outside, nobody can get a dollar bill between you, is that knowing that you have to do that, you work a lot harder to get a, de- a, a decision that's right for the enterprise because yep. that you can uphold. Right? If you know you're driving for something that's going to scratch my edge but not yours, you know this other person's going to have great trouble upholding this outside. Now, why would you do that? Mm. So that's the second one. Um, and the third thing that I would say, and this is the one that's probably the thing that takes a little longer to, to uh, implement, and we're not going to be able to talk through it today, we don't have time. You need to get an actual decision-making process, yeah. um, a default process that when you walk in a room, whether virtual or physical, you as a team agree, this is how we make this, how we make decisions. This is how we do it, rather than just get in a room, hope it will happen. Uh, we have a default one that we um, uh, help organizations use if they haven't worked protocols out. We call it 4D uh, because we tell people, go get the data that you need, then debate the data. And we have a whole set of rules uh, and tools to help you debate the data. Then you either decide or defer. So it's data, mm. debate, decide or defer. Data, debate, decide or defer. Data, debate, decide or defer. Data, debate, decide or defer. And if you work at that, the fact that you've got ground rules as to how you make decisions that unhooks the topic away from the confusion of, wait, wait, wait a minute, where, where were we with this? How were we doing it? Da, 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 da. And I'll say this um, uh, as, as we're moving towards closing. One of the things that's most powerful is something that when I start talking about it, so many teams initially sort of uh, begin to glaze over, but after two minutes begin to see just how this will change things, yeah. is that if you as a team can decide Ahead of time, this is how we decide. In other words, what I mean by that is not the process that we just talked about. When we get to the end, decide or defer, how do we decide? Does the senior pastor say, this is what's going to happen? That's fine. Be overt, though. Agree, that's what happens. Does the team vote? That's mm-hmm. fine. Just be clear about it. Does the senior pastor go home and talk to his spouse about it and then decide a week later? If so, that's probably not just so fine because be you're not helping it. the team. But be honest about it, right? Um, if you're going to vote, do you need unanimity? Does, does it have to be 100% or do you just need a qualified majority? It's really, really uh, – a lot of success in scaling is built on, on the mundane. It's the mundane that kills us. Not being clear about all of this. Think about the meetings that you're in. Endless talk. Never really getting around to the decision. 10 decisions in the last half hour because we blew our time and nobody's quite sure how we made the decision, who made it, or what it is. Right? So a lot of mundane stuff helps you be a synergist. Well, as we wind down, uh, we're going to point people to resources. But um, when you and I were just chatting before we hit record, uh, you said something because we've done this event for pastors two years in a row. You've had a lot of chance to interact. And you told me about some offline conversations that... Um, Executive pastors, campus pastors were saying, look, one of the big challenges is my senior pastor just kind of undoes whatever we decided we were going to do or goes around me or, uh, you know, won't release and keeps his or her hands on the steering wheel too often. I just would love for you to speak into that for a minute because I've definitely heard that same thing. It's something I've written about. It's something you've written about. And it was interesting to me when you said the person most likely to become a synergist, the personality type, is a visionary. Most lead pastors are visionaries. 
Um, can you just in, in, in a couple of sentences, let us know what is at stake if you are that leader who just keeps circumventing the process? Uh, well, the growth of your team is the primary thing because your team will start to withdraw their discretionary effort in terms of high quality mm-hmm. decision making. They may not reduce their discretionary effort in terms of stacking chairs and folding leaflets and you know the actual work that they do outside the leadership group. But within the leadership group, if they if they, if your thought processes aren't transparent, if you're um, you know it, it, I, I don't want to make a, a minor of a molehill, but you know, one of the things that happens quite a lot is that a pastor will um, be in a meeting and some decisions will be made. Then Monday rolls around, they go out for lunch with their spouse, they retalk the whole thing, come back in, and there's a wrinkle on this or there's a different aspect to it or whatever. Uh, and, you know, that, what's wrong with that? It's probably, this is a person who knows them better than anybody else, can speak truth to power, which a lot of the other leaders can't do, um, understands the church, been there from the start. The problem is if you're trying to build a high quality senior leadership team, every time that happens, their muscle gets weaker and the degree to which they'll withdraw gets a little bigger. Um, so, or you go to a conference, you come back and, you know, you just reset the the core priorities for the third time that year. Again, your leaders are going to begin to say to themselves, and church is hard to say it vocally, um, not always, but often, um, they'll start saying to themselves, well, why should I really, really commit to the mental and emotional effort of trying to make really high quality decisions about these items here if they're just going to be unearthed and replaced and reprioritized unilaterally every two to three months? I'll just step back. You ask me, I'll tell you. I'll be like an external advisor, but I can't afford emotionally to get bought in to, the, to what we're talking about here. Because I don't feel like I have any element of control over this. Now, I will also say that, you know, I, I have discussions with senior pastors where they say, look, I really wish I could trust my team more with some of the high, higher level things. They're just not up to making those decisions. So, but I want them to be involved. So, you know, I'm starting here and over time, hopefully it'll grow. And those two things don't correlate. And one of the best, most honest, open discussions you can have is around what is our team mandate right now? In other words, what is the senior pastor actually literally prepared to entrust to the team to make decisions on right now? And sandbox those items and agree between yourselves. Here are the things that we'll talk about and agree as a team. And here are the things that not that I'm not yet a senior pastor comfortable with us discussing as a team, but I want us to get there over the next couple of years. And let's revisit that over each of the next six months and see if we can spread that team mandate out over time as you build your decision-making muscle and show to me that you can help me make, or we can together make the right decisions for the enterprise. So be overt about it. Rather, a lot of it's just you know never really discussed and we get in a meeting and everybody leaves frustrated. And every leader who listened to the end is just so grateful that they did. That was gold. That was gold. Les, thank you so much. Predictablesuccess.com, and we will link to that. And you still have that amazing free tool, right, where you can determine whether you're a visionary operator or processor. And of course, we're all a mixture of the three. But what your dominant secondary and tertiary styles are? Yep, it's at synergistquiz.com, all one word, synergistquiz.com. And uh, you'll get, it takes like eight or 10 minutes and you'll get um, just multiple choice. You'll get a 
uh, a nice succinct analysis and then you've got the option to stick your email address in, hit that, it goes back to our servers, grinds through some stuff and within a couple of minutes you'll get a detailed report uh, with, with much more helpful uh, links to other resources that will help you. They're specifically, um, the resources are specifically matched to your stuff. It's amazing. Uh, we've run our whole teams through it. Um, all the teams I'm involved with have gone through it. It's so helpful and just really, really good. I would highly encourage people to pick up a copy of both The Synergist and Predictable Success. Uh, the books, make sure you listen to episode 112. Less, this has been a thrill. And um, if you're open, I hope it's not our last conversation. It's been enlightening. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Carrie. Thanks, everybody. Super helpful, wasn't that? Man, I'll tell you, I absolutely love my conversations with Les. And if you want to learn more, you can go to the show notes. All the links that we talked about are there, including the free assessment to figure out whether you are a visionary, an operator, a processor, or a synergist. Uh, you can head over to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 206. Again, if this helped you, if you could share this with a business leader in your world, in your personal orbit, I would be so grateful. Just take the link to this show and text it to somebody. And again, we even have suggested text that you can copy and paste with the links included in the show notes. Also, Spotify listeners, hey, guess what? We're on Spotify now. Finally. Yes. So pumped for that. A uh, couple of reminders. We'll get into next week's show. And then I got a personal ask. Just if you're looking to train people, head over to trainedup.church slash carry and if you need a special design, thank you again to Design Crowd and Trained Up for bringing this podcast free to you. Go to designcrowd.com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y, or use the coupon code carry on exit. Remember, you get discounts for being a listener. So both Design Crowd and trainedup.church can help you. Now, uh, okay, I'll tell you what my request is. So this is kind of fun. I have been, as, as some of you know, I've got a new book coming out in about a month, which I'm very excited about. And it's caught the attention of people at South by Southwest. Uh, you know that conference? It, it's been a bucket list thing. I've always wanted to go. Well, we are talking about the possibility of me speaking there next year. And they have this panel picker voting system. Um, they're very interested in the talk, very interested in the book. And uh, I would love for you to cast a vote for me. That's not the only component, but one of the components of how they pick their speakers at South By. So um, voting is open now until the end of August. I would love to have your vote. All the links are in the show notes. Or you can go directly to panelpicker.sxsw, South by Southwest, sxsw.com. Create a free account and vote. Uh, vote for me and I'll set you free, as the song goes. <laughs> I won't set you free. But I would appreciate a vote, and uh, I'm I'm just pumped. I'm pumped at that possibility. So we'll see what happens with it. But they've been fantastic, and and what a dream come true that would be to actually be able to bring the message behind my new book. Didn't see it coming to South by next year. Wow, pumped. So anyway, speaking of bringing content, we're going to bring you some fresh content. In fact, next week, guess what? Surprise, surprise! We have a fresh episode. I sit down and have a an amazing conversation with Bobby Grunwald. He is uh, really one of the geniuses behind so much that happens at Life Church. And I talked to him about his life as a college student starting a couple of startups, first mover advantage, innovation, AI, technology, and the future church. It's a fascinating conversation. Here's an excerpt from next week's episode. 
interesting about Second Life is because everybody had avatars and you couldn't see anyone's face, but they could have these conversations and mm -hmm. dialogues behind these avatars. I found that it was really, uh, people were really willing to go deep in their conversations about spiritual things. Um, like in a first conversation, you could Fast. kind of uh, really, because in real life, you know, we don't have physical facades. So we put up emotional facades when we talk to people. Mm. You yes. can see me, but you can't see inside me um, because I'm pretending to, to be happy or pretending to have it all together. Um, but when I have a physical facade, in the case, this is the case, an avatar, um, I'm more willing and less protective of kind of the emotional or spiritual facade that I might have put up before. Oh, and that, that was the discovery that Second Life gave us. And it really did help bring um, help kind of inform things in the future, at least just how we thought about technology and, and, and how it could be used to kind of maybe break down some of those uh, those facades was such a cool conversation and and not our last i'm sure so subscribers you get that for free you can subscribe anywhere spotify apple podcasts uh, wherever you get your podcasts we are there and if you subscribe for free that will show up automatically next tuesday uh by the time you have breakfast it'll be there so we're really pumped for that a uh, lot of great guests coming up uh, i sit down with actually ann voskamp and talk about my brand new book, which I am very excited about. We're going to bring you that. Uh, Max Lucado, Nancy Duarte, Patrick Lencioni, Francis Chan, Andy Stanley, so many more. It's all part of our commitment to help you lead like never before. And I hope that's exactly what this episode helped you do today. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.